Well, we're moving right along. We're in the 13th century now. Now, if I were going to kind of summarize what's been going on, I would say this. You had the uh, age of the apostles in the first century, and then starting around the year 100, you have the, the era of the church fathers as the church goes forward, and mainly under persecution, first three centuries. The church is dealing with heresies and mainly persecution. And then in the fourth century, with the uh, conversion of Constantine, suddenly the empire is not only pro-Christian, it essentially is Christian. And so the church comes out in the open, and you have a flowering, of course, of theology, of the, the conclusion of the canon, the spread of scripture. But in the providence of God, the, uh, the Germanic invaders destroy the Western Empire. And the only institution really left in the Western Empire is the, the Bishop of Rome and the Catholic Church in the West. Unfortunately, probably starting around 600, not, that, not before then, uh, you have, uh, uh, since they're the only real institution, they uh, evangelize but also make alliances with the new kingdoms, France, Germany, etc., etc., the, the, Eng- the, the Anglo-Saxons and then the English. By the time you get towards the end of the first millennium, the church in the West is really a kingdom of this world. That's probably the biggest problem. They're landowners. They give arm, like major landowners. They they uh, have armies, and the as we've seen uh, in the 11th century, particularly, and in the 12th, an attempt of the church to basically be the controlling interest in all of Western society. Well, the 13th century is going to see dissident movements begin within the church because of the corruption that is involved. The church is about power and money. Uh, It has doctrines, but it's not about those. It's certainly not really a great commission church in any way. And there's moral corruption. And so we're going to look at the Albigensian Crusade, the Inquisition, the Dominican and Franciscan orders, the Fourth Crusade, and then uh, 13th century scholasticism. That's our topics for tonight. Well, last time I talked about the Valdensian movement in southern France. It was kind of a proto-Protestant group. Uh, they, were, they, you know, they, were, they were scripturalists. They weren't very theologically astute, but they were kind of solo scriptura people, even though they didn't interpret it correctly all the time. There's another group that grew at the time that was not that way. It's called the Albigensians, the town of Alba. Albi was the place they came from, is where they came from. And it's a major, di- actually it starts in Germany, but they soon migrate to southern France. It's a good place to be a dissident movement. Uh, they start in 1140. Uh, they basically are Gnostics. Everything we've been seeing in our studies of 1 John and Colossians is pretty much what they believe. And you're, you're often, what they're going to see is a meld of philosophy, Greek philosophy and Christianity. This is one version of that. Uh, they believe the physical world was evil. It was created by Satan. The soul is imprisoned by Satan in an evil body. And so the release of the... Uh, they're very, so everything bodily is bad. Uh, sexual reproduction was the chief sin. There's, all, there's a higher... There's, these are always two-tier movements. There's the pure, the cathari, the, the, the pure. And those are people who don't get married, don't do any of this. You know, they lead radical ascetic lives. They particularly deny, of course, the incarnation and atonement of Jesus. This is all bad. <laughs> We're going to summarize that as a sub-biblical 
protest movement that's really in break in Eastern mysticism and Greek philosophy. Uh, and they, they nestled down in southern France in Toulouse, a very uh, wealthy and uh, prosperous area, and they hunker in. And, uh, and the biggest reason they do well is because the aristocrats, who may or may not be Albigensians, but they're so... They don't want to support the power of the papacy because you have the resurgent political, economic, military power of the papacy. They don't like that. They're kind of the, the princes are rivals with the, with the bishops and the priests. And so largely to be a thorn in the side of the pope, they begin supporting the Albigensians. Now, there is actually a missionary effort. We're going to talk about that when we get to the Dominicans to try and convert them, but they are really dug in, and they're very strong. Um, and so the first move is the, the cardinal in that area excommunicates. Of course, they're excommunicated, but he excommunicates their number one patron, the leading noble of southern France, Raymond of Toulouse. But then Pope Innocent III proclaims a crusade against the Albigensians. This is a new turn. Previous to this, the, the so-called nuclear option, as we talked about it before, was mass excommunication. But it wasn't working. People weren't caving into excommunication anymore. He actually declares a crusade, which means if you take up the cross against them, you burn, you burn salvation points. And, of course, it, you know, there's all kinds of men-at-arms and knights wanting to kill people. They, go, they descend on southern France, and they just slaughter the Albigensians. Now, this is not a good turn of events as the Middle Ages uh, increases. Uh, unfortunately, because the Valdensians were in the same area, many of them were killed. In fact, they went to northern Italy largely because of this. And so the Albigensian crusade, we don't have any sympathy doctrinally with the Albigensians, but we kind of stand back and go, wowzer. So you declared a crusade on them and you physically exterminated them. Uh, and yes, they did. So that's the way things are going. Now this leads to the Inquisition. Uh, prior to the 13th century, uh, the local bishops were in charge of dealing with heresy, and by and large, they weren't all that motivated, to be honest. Um, but Innocent III, the pope in this time, he's tired of this, and the Albigensians are under his skin in a major way. Of course, they're a political problem. Uh, they're an economic problem for him. So he starts deploying papal agents who don't work for the bishops, so you're sitting in whatever corner of the place you happen to be in the empire, and you've got your noble, your lord, you've got your local bishop, you've got your thing going, and in come these agents from the outside, and they say, who here's a heretic? And this is not, this is not good. And so people start, you know, turning on each other because the Inquisition uses torture to gain confessions. That is the way that they operate. If, if you've seen... Uh, uh, the Princess Bride. <laughs> you have kind of this kind of features in in movie lore and and, and, and literature. Well, it's true. And if you if under torture you confessed, if you were pretty easy about it, you might get a fine. You might be told you have to make a, a pilgrimage somewhere. If you're really bad, really bad, you might have your property confiscated. You might be sent to prison. But for the grade A heretics, now the practice of public burning. And so you have these dissident movements, shall we say, they are not popular with Rome. And the ones that are deemed a serious threat, and you talk about, 
you know, the, the, the papacy becoming a, a this-worldly kingdom. And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Well, that's not true. They're now burning people alive for not bowing to the authority. Now this, one of the reasons, by the way, if you look at the 13th, 14th, and 15th centuries, you go, we don't really know a lot about the dissident groups. We don't know that much about the Waldensians, no certain amount about the Albigensians, there's the Cathari, there's other groups, even the Lollards of Wycliffe, which we'll talk about. We don't really have good documentation, well, for a good reason. They were an underground movement. Whether they were godly or not, they were a persecuted movement, and so they all go underground. That was the Inquisition, which begins in 1227. Well, there also were, so those are the dissident groups that are not accepted, and that's what happens to them. But, you know, you got a little, I remember one time I uh, was at a church, it was a really a staunchly conservative church, traditional worship to the hilt, famous for, you know, rigorous reformed worship, and I, uh, and I, uh, I spoke at their summer camp, and they, for, this, for their evening service at this church, their evening services in the summer were at their summer camp. And for the evening service, they had a, a guitar, and they and I said to the guy, "I'm, I'm a little surprised that uh, I mean, you're like Mr. Uber Reformed Worship guy, and in the summertime, I'm not criticizing you, you know. It's it's he says, well, Rick, you got a little, you got to let a little steam out sometime. <laughs> well, this is how they let steam out inside. You got to allow." some criticism without killing everybody. And the two main ones of the 13th century are going to be the Franciscans and then the Dominicans. And these are groups responding in different ways to the overworldliness and the corruption of the established order. Now, Francis of Assisi is the son of an Italian merchant from a pretty wealthy family. He serves in the army. He claims he has a vision in which he's called to form this group, which becomes the Franciscans. Uh, and it's a life of poverty and of preaching. And so they're, they're going to attach onto the statements of Jesus uh, about renouncing goods, not living for the wealth of the world. That's kind of going to be their core doctrine. And they're going to go about preaching, doing good, uh, ministering to the poor. And the uh, Francis and his followers, there were originally 12 of them, so it's good. So this is the imitation of Christ. By the way, there's a good way and a bad way that we speak about imitating Christ. We do not gain salvation by imitating Christ. And this kind of gets into all that. They kind of go that way. So how, what's your hope of heaven? I'm going to imitate Christ. Well, you're going to fail. Uh, but having been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, we then are to imitate Christ, but we don't become new Christ. We we, we, we imitate his commands and obey him. Well, radical asceticism and, they, and the embrace of poverty was, as a, at a, was really poverty as an end in itself. Poverty was the life of poverty was the goal. Now, we want to critique that. And the, the Savior who said, I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. The, the Bible is never against prosperity. Poverty is never an end in itself, but it becomes an end in itself for Francis. And they were, they were called, they're the first of what's called the mendicant orders. You don't have to write it down, it's what they're called. That means they're the begging orders. So the original Franciscans literally owned nothing. You know where Jesus said, uh, and take no coin in your purse. So they literally would not take coins in there and they just went about begging uh, the whole time. 
Uh, they were very missions-minded. They went out two by two, just like in Luke 10. They worked among the poor in cities, and the movement grow, grew. Well, they were a threat to, to, originally to Rome. This is yet another one of these groups, not sanctioned by the bishop, not sanctioned by Rome. They seem to be somewhat critical. Uh, you know, they like the Waldensian. What are they? Well, Francis goes, and he actually travels in 1210, to Rome and meets with Innocent III and, and asks if the Pope will put his sanction on it. Now the Pope, has, he knows he's got this corruption problem. He knows that people are upset about it. So he, he actually claims he saw a vision of Francis holding up the Basilica in Rome and that vision persuaded him to approve as an order the Franciscan order. I'm a little skeptical about that, but that's what he claims. Um, but then it becomes an official Catholic order. Now you've got to have the hierarchy. Francis, was, he's a mystic. He, he's a poet, a, a nature commune with God, God person, and, and, and a lovely person, by the way. We sing some of his hymns. Uh, but uh, we, 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 we do think he led a godly life he did not profess the gospel in a very clear way. But, uh, but what happens is it becomes official. And you have to have hierarchies. And now you have, actually they, they appoint a cardinal to be the head of the Franciscan order. Within a few years, Francis resigns in frustration. Because, and actually within a few years, they officially get rid of the vow of poverty thing. That's not the way it works in Roman Catholic monasteries. Uh, you, you, got, you have fundraising departments. Uh, and what well, we do too. You have to resource things. And uh, uh, so Francis leaves. He actually goes to become a missionary to the Muslims for a number of years. Uh, and his famous stigmata uh, come later in life after that. Uh, the Franciscans become the Grey Friars. So you're kind of your, your uh, Robin Hood. This is kind of the heir of Robin Hood. And so your, your happy friar from literature is likely going to be a Franciscan. Um, not doctrinally rigorous, certainly not legalistic, uh, very cheerful, living among and serving the poor. Uh, well, there's another group called the Dominicans. And again, there's this awareness that the wealth and the worldliness and the corruption of the church is causing all this opposition. And so a man named Dominic Guzman is sent to southern France as a missionary to the Albigensians. Very smart guy, very loyal guy. And, uh, and he is impressed when he sees the zeal, the purity of life. Actually, it was the wrong kind of purity again. Uh, God's, it is not a high, being celibate, living alone, own, having no possessions. It's not actually a higher spirituality. But in contrast to the corruption of the worldliness, he's very impressed. The zeal they had impressed him. So he then organizes the Dominican order, which is named for him. They are also very devoted to an ascetic lifestyle. To, originally, they start with a vow of poverty as well. The difference now is that this is the doctrinal group. And so the Dominicans become the, it's the order of the preachers. And over the centuries, even today, the Dominicans, of course the Jesuits come a little bit later, they're very much into education as well. But the Dominicans are the, it's the, they're the doctrinal guardians of the Roman Catholic Church. Now unfortunately, uh, it's not scriptural doctrine, it's the systematic theology of, of the Catholic Church. 
So it would be what you see in your Catholic catechism and those sorts of things. Uh, So they spread out. They become influential in the universities. And before long, they do away with, I think rightly, the emphasis on manual labor because these these guys have to study. So it becomes a very scholarly order. Interestingly, the Dominican nuns, even early on, taught theology to girls. Uh, they were successful by, by, by arguing mainly from reason the, the doctrines of the faith and teaching them to people. They did, in fact, buttress up the, the anti-church movement. Uh, and there's developed, not surprisingly, a strong rivalry between the Dominicans and the Franciscans, which pretty much exists today. Your hospital is likely to be Franciscan. Uh, St. Mary's is a Franciscan hospital. I knew it the moment I walked in there, but it, there's, this, there's a courtyard with St. Francis out there pretty much confirming it. Uh, the Dominicans are the Black Friars. The Franciscans are the Grey Friars. Well, one of the, one of the reasons the Franciscans disliked the Dominicans so much was pretty much all of your inquisitors were Dominicans. Well, of course they were. Uh, and so, these, so, you, so you have then illegal dissidents, may, and the big issue mainly is whether or not you will accept the authority of the Pope. It's not so much over a doctrinal thing, although clearly the Albigensians were off the reservation. The main issue is, will you ask permission and only act on permission of the hierarchy or hierarchical order? Now that's, by the way, now you see we're ramping up to the Reformation. These trends and developments are working up to the Protestant Reformation. Very much for the next 400 years or so, we're ramping up to the Reformation. But let's not leave out the Crusades. The most infamous of the Crusades, the Fourth Crusade, uh, occurs in the 13th century. It is led by Pope Innocent III. It was entirely French. And the aim was to reconquer uh, Egypt to relieve pressure on the Eastern Empire. This is, this is the worst of all the Crusades. So a lot of the really bad things you hear about the Crusades are focused here. Um, here, someone's got to pay for it. The Venetians pay for it. So you kind of got Venice as the merchant city. And they had had, they had kind of an empire, and there was a city called Zara in Dalmatia, more or less Hungary, that had broken away from them. And they were actually, the, the Venetians were paying for the transit of this mass army. So they say to the crusaders, part of your obligation in response for us shipping you to the east for the crusade, is you have to stop them in Hungary. You've got to capture this town of Zara and, and bring it back under our control, which they do in a very bloody way. Well, the Pope hears about it, and he's furious. He actually excommunicates both the crusaders, and it just kind of shows you where we are. So he calls for a crusade. He raises an army. This is why we don't have armies as a church. He, he sends them out. He ends up excommunicating them before they even get there. He excommunicates the Venetians. Well, the, the army comes back and says, we're really sorry. They asked us to do it. They told us we had to. Well, you know, we did it. And so he relieves the excommunication on the crusaders, but not on the Venetians. So you have a crusade, a papal army still in collaboration, now with an excommunicated city, uh, I think we're becoming very pragmatic. So they, they get to the east, and it turns out that a, there's been a dynastic struggle there. And there's a man named Alexius Angelus. He's the son of a recently deposed Byzantine emperor. And he meets with them, and he says, I'm going to cut a deal with you. 
on your way to, by the way, they never get to Egypt. On, on your way to Egypt, if you will attack and besiege and take Constantinople and make me the emperor, I will make it a Western Catholic church. So we'll bring it under, under the Pope, and I'll give you lots and lots and lots of money. So they do. They put him in power, and then he can't raise the money. Oops. He can't raise the money. So what do you do when you're a holy army commissioned in the name of Christ to, of course, you get all your sins forgiven by the indulgence that you got for going on it, and then, but you just can't get the cash. Well, of course, you know what you do. You sack the city. You slaughter the people. You, you rob it of all. Actually, they say the, they say the, the Venetians did. I hope everybody here from Venice, this is not the greatest moment of Venetians. They, the Venetians loot the whole city. And uh, they install a Frenchman on the throne of the Eastern Empire. That does not last, of course. Uh, that is, in, in vernacular terms, not good, Bob. This is not good. They actually never get to, uh, to Egypt. Uh, the, the two things that really result from it, it's a, it's a wound from which the Eastern Empire never recovers. Uh, and if you, if you, if you see uh, pictures of Istanbul today, which is Constantinople, and you see the Hagia Sophia, the, 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 the church in which John Chrysostom preached the gospel. Uh, now it's, it's still there, that fourth century uh, massive cathedral. Of course, it's Muslim. You may thank the Fourth Crusade in large part for it. Uh, uh, the, let's talk about the Crusades as a whole. The Crusades played an important role in the medieval church by advancing the prestige and influence of the papacy. That was their main attention. He was the unifying force. People, are, people say this today. Why can't we get Christianity together? Well, we do have Christianity together. True Christians are joined together. We're joined together with true Christians all the time. But if you think of the church as, an, uh, as, a, as a hierarchical chart, people say to me, why, are you, why aren't you upset that there's Presbyterians with whom you're not in union? Well, my main reason is because a lot of them don't believe in Jesus Christ, and so I don't want to be in union with them. That's not a dig. It's a, it's a matter of fact, and it's not about the names and the titles. and the. We, we, and of course, we have doctrinal convictions that cause us to do things a certain way. We have a denomination. We do things with Baptist churches the whole time. I, I certainly do. Uh, and, and other types of Christians. But if you're thinking in terms of a, a hierarchical chart, and something about our minds does, then the, you're looking for someone to lead the church on some... You know, of course, today, it's the political struggles. It's important political matters like abortion and whatnot. And we are co-laborers with our Catholic friends on that. And with others, I will co-labor with Jewish people uh, on some of these moral issues. But the church as the church, we're not seeking an institutional union. We have a spiritual union through the Word of God, by the Holy Spirit, through faith in the Lord Jesus and our commitment to the Great Commission. Well, he's the champion. He's organizing everything. It greatly advances the prestige of the papacy. Again, it, it, it doesn't quite create, although it virtually does, but it makes indulgences a big deal. Remember that the cross that the Crusaders wore was a symbol that they had had a plenary indulgence from the Pope for forgiving them of all their sins. And if you were not able to go on the crusade because you were old or lame or you, you know, somebody had to, to run the store, but you paid money for someone to go in your place, both you and him got it and all your sins were forgiven. And so this quickly becomes the selling 
of indulgences for salvation. Uh, it advances the idea of holy war uh, to destroy the enemies of the church. There's not much of, there is some, but not much evangelism to the Muslims. It's warfare against the Muslims. And uh, the, uh, uh, it advanced strong monarchies in Western Unit, Europe as uh, you needed crowns, you needed strong kingdoms to do this. It inflicted lasting you know, it, it is something that uh, you may go, you know, in your church history, you're not doing that much about the Eastern Church. Well, we did earlier on, I have a few things to say later, but we're, there's this massive cleavage from the time of the Crusade between the Eastern, I think the only time I've done anything with the Eastern Orthodox was church league basketball with St. George. Uh, but uh, uh, in many ways, very different religions and left a legacy of hardness and bitterness between Christians and Muslims. So not on the whole great. Well, let's conclude by talking about academic scholarship, the development of doctrine. 13th century is very important. One big figure is John Bonaventure. He becomes the head of the Franciscan order. And he, as you would expect, is going to advance the mystical tradition. By the way, the Roman Catholic Church is a big tent. And as long as you're in the tent, you're out of the tent, we crusade against you. In the tent, you got all kinds of different people. But if a Roman Catholic says to you, how come you all have denominations and we don't? Just say Franciscan, Dominican, Jesuit, Augustinians. They've got all kinds of denominations under their hierarchical. Well, that one of the ways within Rome is the mystical way. And John Bonaventure is a leader for that. Uh, the contemplative mysticism. The contemplation of God. God is not known by reason, but he's known by the soul, in the soul. Now, what we would say about that is, no, God is known by his revealed word, but it's going to lead to those things in your heart. Uh, there are, of course, Protestant mystical movements, and to the extent that they lead away from the revelation of God, the knowledge of God through his word, by which the Holy Spirit enlightens the mind and heart, then we're not going to be in favor of them any more than this. A spirituality of mystical contemplation. He is the prince of mystics. Uh, then you have John Duns Scotus, 1265 to 1308, teaches at Oxford and is in Paris. He, this is uh, one of the heroes of the sovereignty of God movement. He's a reminder that believing in the sovereignty of God does not itself make you reformed. Uh, but boy, does he believe in the sovereignty of God. Boy, does he believe in predestination. A predestination is not a John Calvin idea, of course. And uh, he believed that the essence of God is will. God's will is free. And so he's going to emphasize those verses. We will agree with him on many of them which speaks of God's sovereign will. What does the Westminster Confession say? God wills so whatsoever comes to pass. Uh, Dun Scotus is going to agree with that. And he, he makes that the center of all things. Uh, he teaches the atonement was necessary only because God chose for it to be. We, we actually teach the intrinsic necessity uh, of the atonement, that uh, there was no, and he would teach, God could have done it anyway. No, Scripture does not reveal that. If God is going to say he freely chooses to do, he can only do so by the atonement. Uh, he's, and so he's not going to be very high into piety, uh, minimizes confession and, rep and repentance. He, he teaches that God wills forgiveness. Uh, he actually, and, and I don't know enough about him to know how, why he is the guy to do this. He's the one who really starts working out the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. 
Now, the Immaculate Conception is not about the virgin birth of Jesus. It's saying that Mary also, and you're leading towards the whole co-redemptrix route, she also, as the, as the Theotokos, the mother of God, she also had to be without sin. Actually, she did not have to be without sin. And about, when, when she calls him my savior, she's reflecting that she needed a savior from sin. That's no dig on Mary. But the Immaculate Conception is the doctrine that says that there was a supernatural work while she was in her mother's womb so that she, like Jesus, was, was, was preserved from, the, from original sin and any actual sinfulness. Well, what does Paul say in 1 Timothy 2.5? There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Uh, we talked about in the previous century how the piety was going towards Mary under Bernard of Clairvaux. Now the doctrine is going that way. And the argument was, well, Scripture doesn't deny it. That is, if you hear me arguing that way about a doctrine, hit me with, with something non-permanently injuring. Uh, uh, since Mary is considered a second Eve to go along with Christ as the second Adam, they start bringing up an analogy, a parallelism between Mary and Christ, the doctrine of immaculate conception. Well, that's going to lead us to the biggest theological name of the 13th century, Thomas of Aquinas. He's born into a noble Italian family. He becomes, of course, a Dominican. And he is going to be an Aristotelian philosopher and an Augustinian theologian, sort of. He's known for two great books, The Summary of Theology, the Summa Theologica, which is massive, a systematic theology, and then the Summa Contra Gentiles, uh, summary against the pagans, which is his uh, famous apologetic work. Uh, the Council of Trent, the Counter-Reformation in the 16th century, is going to adopt August, uh, a, 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 a Thomistic theology uh, very strongly. Interesting, when I spoke at the Roman Catholic Church for Reformation Day a few years ago, the guys I got along with on this side were the Thomists. Uh, because at least they were willing to be honest about what they believed. And they, were, they had a systematic theology we could actually talk about why we believe different things with them. And I found myself at least intellectually respecting the Thomistic scholars. I, I think that I respected them more than the other evangelicals who were there, and they respected me more than the other Roman Catholics who were there. It's kind of the way things work sometimes. Uh, these are going to be high intellectual people, very influential today. In 1879, so recently, uh, he was made a doctor of the church. His doctrine was made binding for all time. And yet there's major, major problems with Thomas. Uh, first of all, on the atonement, he's going to try to do an intermediate position between Anselm and Abelard. We don't need an intermediate position. Uh, of course, Anselm teaches penal substitutionary atonement. Abelard teaches the moral influence theory, liberal theology. What he's going to do is he's going to ground it sacramentally. The atonement now, and this has been building up all the way since Gregory the Great, really, and it's kind of the practice of the church. Now he's going to build, this in a formal way, he's going to build the salvation theology into the sacraments. Uh, he teaches a treasury of merits. So here's the question. Everyone knows, anybody who knows you knows that when you die, that you're still a sinner. I mean, you know, it's, they're going to say, well, some people aren't, they're wrong. But uh, so how the person who is a sinner when they die, though they believe in Jesus, how are they going to be justified by a holy God? Well, the Bible's answer is their sins are cleansed, uh, all their guilt is paid for by the blood of Christ, and they stand before God in the imputed righteousness 
of Christ himself credited to them through faith. That's the biblical doctrine. He's going to argue, no, the Pope controls a treasury of merits. All the bonus points, anybody here love bonus points as a student? If you're a child of mine and you don't get your bonus points, you're a slacker. You always go for, there's no risk. Get the bonus points. So you've got these bonus points from all these excess good works. Of course, that's a fiction too. And the Pope now has control of them, which means he has the right to sell indulgences. Indulgences cover the temporal effects of sin, the temporal, and here's where you get purgatory. It's not invented here, but it's codified. A purga, I once heard R.C. Sproul say, you know, the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory is good news. It leads to you going to heaven. It's just not very good news. <laughs> so uh, purgatory is not hell. It's just as kind of like hell. And for X number of tens of thousands of years, you're having your soul purged until your smoking soul arrives on the beach of heaven. Um, and, uh, but what indulgences do is they don't save you. Purgatory saves you, but it shortens your purgatory. So when Martin Luther in the 16th century, when he goes to the Lateran Cathedral Chapel in, 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 uh, in Rome and he does the, the Scala Sancta, and, you're, and you, uh, we'll talk about it then, but when you, he climb, it, when you climb up the, the, it's supposed to be the staircase that Jesus walked up to see Pontius Pilate, some Arab merchant sold it to them in the Third Crusade. And, uh, and if you do an, a Hail Mary on each, you go on your knees, you do a Hail Mary on one, you do an Our Father on the next, you get to the top, and you get to name somebody, and they get out of purgatory completely. And Luther writes for going there, my only regret is my parents had not yet died. But, but he later reports that while he was doing it, he's thinking, what am I doing? Nowhere in the Bible will say this works, and, and he's wrestling with justification through faith alone. Well, Thomas is going to, in high rational theology, not scriptural exposition. But the interesting thing was, and look, I don't want to generalize my rather limited experience with Thomas, but I preached for, they gave me, you know I was happy, they gave me 90 minutes to preach. I was a very happy camper. And uh, then he spoke for 90 minutes without a single reference to scripture. It was staggering. And it was brilliant. And I, I, I personally enjoyed the interaction not a single reference to scripture it's reason and church dogma um he is the he's the one who breaks out the mortal versus venial sins a venial sins a smaller thing a mortal sin doesn't kill you it kills your sacramental grace that you got in your infant baptism uh roman catholic infant baptism to be completely distinguished from reformed covenant theology uh, baptism is, re- is it's baptismal regeneration. It's not you who are born again. It's your original sin that's supposedly wiped out. But if you commit a mortal sin, adultery, uh, murder, of course, blasphemy, uh, you, uh, you lose your... So it, 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 kill, it, it takes a lot of effort and money to overcome a mortal sin. Venial sins, you know, you go to the priest, you confess, he gives you some penances and you're good to go. He's the one who works that out. He also works out the doctrine of transubstantiation, uh, which argues that the, in the Mass, in the, their version of the Lord's Supper, although very different, uh, the actual elements become the physical body and blood of Christ. And as the physical 
body and blood of Christ, they, they convey the saving grace in that way. Now, when we get to the 17th century, the Puritan the fathers are going to be burned to the stake over that doctrine. And people go, why would you die over a doctrine like that? Because the whole gospel's involved. It's a whole system of religion. Uh, Thomas develops that. Uh, the Eucharist as a priestly sacrifice. We will never say in the Lord's Supper, we are making a sacrifice. I'm not a priest at all. Christ is the once-for-all priest. He made the once-for-all sacrifice. Uh, we do not remake it. That's Thomas of Aquinas. Now, he's very well known for his apologetic. In Summa Contra Gentiles, he's going to argue rationally for uh, proofs for God. Now, these become very famous, even among Protestants, until late in the 20th century, widely used. And the idea was that you can win your unbelieving neighbor to faith in Christ by these rational arguments. Uh, one of them is from the change in the world. There, there's change in the world, but there has to be something holding it together so it doesn't all fall apart. Uh, logically, there must be something that does not change, therefore there is God. And you have the tele- what's called the teleological argument from causation. Everything we observe is cause, but logically there must be an uncaused first mover. That is God. Uh, from the intrinsically necessary, that is God. Uh, the ontological argument, whatever, whatever there is, there's the greatest ideal version of it, very platonic. And uh, whatever is the greatest and true, most lovely, that is God. From the order of nature, there is a, there is a design in nature, and that design requires a designer. That designer is called God. Now, what's interesting is all of these are right. It's interesting, you know, even 25 years ago, uh, a church like ours may have taught these. And kind of your standard 1975, that's actually 45 years ago now. So what I think, think of as 25 years ago is actually 45 years ago. But the uh, uh, Christians would be using these arguments, but you don't hear much of it. Why is that? Well, A, because we're no longer, we're a postmodern neo-pagan society and people don't care about reason anymore. On the whole, that's a bad thing. But the truth is, people are, the Lord can use some of these arguments to kind of strip away the detritus of unbelieving philosophy. But what does Peter say? You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed, by the living and abiding word of God. And so uh, we much more emphasize today the witness of Scripture. Uh, even in our apologetics, we're going to take largely a different approach, but this has been a very... Uh, influential. I'm sure most Christians are taught these, and they're true. They're actually helpful to Christians. I personally am skeptical you're going to have success arguing someone this way into the kingdom of God. Uh, Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of of Christ. Well, there begins to be a a fight then, because Thomas is going to ground God in being, whereas Duns Scotus grounds God in will. Now, you're probably at this point going, can you say that again? No, I'm not going to. Because it would require la- massive, detailed explanations that would be ten times more heat than any light. And this is what happens to scholastic theology. The argument between the Scotus school and the Thomistic school leads to the breakdown of scholasticism into, ma- into a minutiae and an increasing obscurity that just kind of gets lost to the people. 
And that's one of the effects of it. Well, that is, and one thing you're seeing is if I wrap this up, you see in so many ways in God's providence, there's a crash coming for this church. There's great Christians in the church. There's a few great popes. But the church is not professing the gospel. The church is on a worldly mission, not on a, a kingdom of Christ mission in my kingdoms of another world. Uh, violence is being used. By, and if you ever say, you know, I wish we could, you know, have somebody arrest those hair. Be careful what you ask for. That is not the way the church deals with its issues, by arresting people and burning them at the stake and those sorts of things, although we've done a little bit of ourselves, we being the Reformed movement. Um, the Holy Spirit is, is, is the real source of this dissent, and it's going to grow. We're now ramping up on culturally, intellectually, uh, uh, the, the, the nature of the church itself, the worship of the church, we're ramping up to the Protestant Reformation and the building blocks are being set in place. Well, let's pray together. Father, we pray that we would grow wise through church history, that we'd, we'd realize that the, the things that we are facing today are rooted in things your people faced long before. And uh, Father, I suppose one of the takeaways again tonight is that we need to seek our salvation in you, our deliverance in you. We need to be people of your book. We need to be spiritual people with a capital S. Holy Spirit people, indwelt by your power, through your word of God, make us a people of prayer. And uh, give us a reliance that you take care of us. And what Christ said will never fail. He said, I will build my church. We praise him for it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.